what triggered this bizarre behavior. Journey into the cold heart of northern darkness with Nordic crimes. That case uh, became like a scene from a horror movie. A new true crime documentary series that chilled the bone. The hunger for killing is increasing in the course of these homicides. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nordic Crimes is a part of the Acast family. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Previously on One Minute Remaining. I've always wanted to say that. So other than the glaring issues that are facing this case, the biggest question I believe on everyone's mind is how? How does a jury find Temujin Kenzu guilty of this crime? Well, I did a lot of ringing around with some information that I was given. Much like my attempts to track down Crystal Merrill, I was drawing blank. Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. At the tone, please... After blank... We're sorry, you have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. After blank. Hello? Yeah, hi. Uh, my name's Jack Lawrence. I'm a, a journalist in Australia. I'm working on a story about uh, the Fred Freeman case. Um, no, thank you. Have a good day. Okay, no problem. Fair enough. After blank. Please leave your message. Yeah, hi. My name's Jack Lawrence. I'm, I'm trying to track down... Uh, I'm a journalist. I'm working on the story of uh, Fred Freeman, I believe. Until... Yeah, hello. Hello, is that... Yep. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Today is part six, and the final part for now of the story of Timujin Kenzu, a man who has spent almost 37 years incarcerated for the murder of a man called Scott Macklem. A murder he not only says he didn't do, but in fact it was impossible for him to have committed this crime as he was over 400 miles away from where it happened. So in today's final episode, we have a couple of firsts in this case. We will hear for the very first time from a witness who has never spoken before. Someone who Temujin has said he was with in the early hours of the morning on the day of the crime over 400 miles away. And we also hear from a juror, a man who has never before spoken publicly about this case. Until now. Now, 
I've been asked by this gentleman not to use his name, so I'm going to refer to him as Mike. As you can imagine, when you've been a juror on one of these types of cases, you can face a lot, not just from the public, but also from yourself. You, you, you mentioned to me in, in our messages that um, it's sometimes this, this case does sometimes play on your mind. Why, why is that? Well, it's, it, uh, again, it's just one of those things that 20 years after the fact that, you know, you see a report and now they're saying that, you know, this wasn't really correct or that wasn't really correct, so might not have been that person and, and things like that. So, again, to just sit there and it, it's like... Man, I, I really hope that, uh, again, he's not innocent because I don't want to know that I'm one that had made him go to prison for, you know, 30 or 40 years. Mike and I spoke via message for a while prior to him agreeing to speak with me on the show. And he'd said to me that certain things about this case had bothered him at the time and continue to bother him over the years. Can you remember any specific moments where you asked for clarification on something or you asked for, for further information on something and you were denied? Oh, yeah. And that's Like I was saying, that, that was one of the things that I brought up with uh, Corden was um, there were like witnesses that saw him driving a car out of the school part or the college parking lot. And that's what I said, that I wanted to have us jurors get loaded in a bus or a van or whatever, and we go stand in the parking lot somewhere and and have a car drive by us at 25 miles an hour just to see if we could physically see somebody and be able to retain who that person was. And they they denied it. Again, Cleveland denied it, and so did Gordon. Just said, you know, that's not part of your... uh, your aspects here, you're, you know, you got to basically prove that he's guilty. And again, I, I had thought that if there was at least three or four of us jurors that could just physically look at somebody and then see them later, or, you know, you could tell that if it was a male or a female, or, you know, it's not so much color of hair or whatever, but still it would have been nice to say, yeah, that person driving by at that speed could be recognisable. Mike also brought up the prosecution's expert pilot, who we now know after the fact had a connection to the prosecutor in this case. Uh, they did bring in a pilot. He didn't really... They never proved the fact that he either got on an airplane, because, again, if you were to drive to Escanaba from here, uh, you know, it's a 15-hour ride one way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a Whereas way. in a, a plane, a plane, it could be, you know, upwards of five hours in one direction and, and back. Uh, so, again, there's there's 10 hours one way and there's 30 hours another way. Yeah. So, you know, they really couldn't prove that he was he ever left town. You know, did, did, so, we, we, was the know, jury ever made aware that the that pilot that they put on the stand was actually the personal pilot of the prosecutor in the case? No. Nobody ever said that that guy was uh, Cleveland's pilot or anything like that. But, you yeah. know, again, there was a lot of stuff that was kept from us. Yeah, a lot of stuff. We were really proven to. Yeah. So. As we already know, the prosecution's key eyewitness was their only bit of supposed real evidence. Without it... They had no case. And Mike tells me that this, for the jury, was really their deciding factor as they struggled with the fact that there really was no hard evidence and specifically no weapon found. But ultimately, in the jury's eyes, they had this witness 
saying he saw Fred Freeman in that car. Well, you know, was there a case of it was all straight away all guilty or did we were you divided in the room? How did that work? We were a little bit, and a lot of it was the testimony about uh, the person, the people seeing him in the automobile. And that's why, again, I had asked if uh, there was some way that we could just go over there and determine for ourselves if somebody driving by could be recognizable if you're driving at 25 or 35 miles an hour kind of thing. And, and again, they had denied that. So, yeah. uh, again, there were times when a few of us were saying, well, yeah, it looks as though it is. And then there would be two or three others and say, well, you really can't say that that is or that isn't. So I can't really vote that way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, that's uh, kind of what I was I was leading to, that a couple of the people that weren't really there. Yeah. It's just like, well, just imagine you're standing there and a car driving at 25 miles an hour uh, you're going to have at least maybe four or five seconds that you're going to physically be able to look in and see somebody. Now, in that five seconds, do you think it's something that you could notify or be positive that it's, you know, A, B, or C? And uh, a couple of them said, yeah, I went home and uh, I had my husband. I was standing at the mailbox and he drove by at 25 miles an hour and the five seconds that I could see him, I could actually physically know that I could see him. Did you ever feel any sort of pressure or anything like that to come with come back with a unanimous decision? Well, I remember a couple of times that we were one or two people off and again, we, we just had sent a letter to Gordon saying that, you know, we're having difficulties because again, some people don't like this that, you know, again, is, is a damning factor. And there's other people that uh, believe that it was. And they said, no, you've got to, you can't be a hunger. You've got to be unanimous. And uh, again, and it was, I think it was a day after that, that we all finally just said, yeah, we'll go ahead and say, no. Do you think, you know, with knowing the little bits and pieces that have popped up since this has happened over the years and, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but but looking at, you know, the information that you probably know more about now and that sort of stuff, do you think you would still come to the same same verdict? It's, it's hard to say. And I have a, a lawyer friend that uh, was actually part of that case as well. I think he was doing something pro bono, uh, whatnot. I talked to him in length about it as well. And he says, you know, don't let it blow on you. You know, you were a juror and you were given specific information and that's what you went on. He could be innocent, but that's not your decision to make because you were given the information at the time and that's when everything was pertinent. You know, so you you really can't let it get you down. And and I just told him, I said, well, you know, again, it's it's one of those what ifs. Mike says this case has definitely affected him. Obviously, with all the news stories that have flown around over the years, no one wants to believe they may have been part of putting an innocent man behind bars. He says he even got called up yet again recently to be on another jury. I was in a, uh, I was selected for jury duty 
last year. And oh, wow. uh, again, I had gone, I got, had gone into the courtroom and they were selecting people. And again, they go through and, you know, this is what happened. And this is why this person is being charged or, or whatever. And uh, do you think you could hold a, you know, clear thought and be able to prove innocence and, and, and whatnot? I, I just, I just spoke to him and I said, no, I can't. I, I cannot in good conscience be a juror on a trial. And uh, again, the lawyers were both confused by that. And then the, the judge had asked me, he goes, has there been something that really had made you think that way? And I had told him, I said, I was on this murder case at the college back in 86. And uh, again, now they're saying that, you know, he might not be guilty. And I said, you know, we on me all the time as far as, uh, thinking that I had sent somebody to prison when they made that happen. And the judge spoke up and he says, I totally agree with, with what you're saying. Uh, he said, actually, I was a court clerk back before I was a judge. And uh, I, I remember that case really, really well. And, and yes, I can see your point where, again, with all of the things that have been posted and put in the paper and on TV, and uh, he goes, you know, uh, I just want to let you know that uh, you are free to go, and I will put a recommendation on your on your file, so you won't get ever called for jury duty again. So we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, the lady who Temujin says he was with on a date in the early hours of that fateful morning in 1986 speaks for the very first time. 
The Attorney General of the state of Michigan is the lady who's basically in charge of everything to do with the law in that particular state. Her name is Dana Nessel. And she was apparently made well aware of Temujin's case before she even got into office and had stated that this was one they would be looking into. My case went to her integrity unit. Uh, it was given to Robin Frankel, who's actually spoken about my case in the past. She's a specialist in wrongful convictions. She's been involved in multiple ones and helped clear innocent people before there were integrity units in, in the state attorney general's office. Dana brought her in. They gave her my case. And within about six months, they decided she couldn't be on my case because she supposedly had some kind of a conflict. This is a woman who had already admitted belief in my innocence and who confirmed my case was going to be fully investigated. And now I'm being told she's not going to be allowed to work on my case. Dana pulled her off my case and gave it to Valerie Newman. Valerie Newman was running the Wayne County, which is a Detroit area in, in Michigan, the Detroit area conviction integrity unit. She cleared two friends of mine, Ray and Tommy Hires, that were innocent. And we were very excited about that at first. And then a battle started as to who was going to handle my case and what unit had authority. And that cost me another year of my life. And eventually they brought in Val and Patricia Little. And I did a long interview with them in the same room that I'm in right now. And uh, the investigation began, and we gave them everything. Years of investigator findings, law enforcement conclusions. I had the support of federal judges, United States attorneys, two former Michigan Supreme Court chief justices. All of that went to the integrity unit. And three years later, more than three years later, I'm still sitting in prison because this is what they did. They wrote a giant report. The report concluded my conviction should be voided, meaning thrown out, and I should be immediately released. And then that was about 18 months into the investigation. Valerie Newman confirmed this repeatedly. She uh, complained that uh, she herself was troubled. It was taking so long for them to do anything about it. Then one day, Dana Nessel, and I believe Fadwa Hamoud, the Solicitor General, decided to close my case after I had been cleared as innocent. And they had written a massive report. We were told it's as big as 2,500 pages. Uh, concluding not only that I was innocent, but that there were just a monstrous number of violations in my case and absolutely no evidence that I committed this crime. They went into Valerie one day and said, we need you to read this. Now, meanwhile, the media was furious. They were going after them. Why is this taking so long? Why is this guy still in prison? Why aren't you doing something? NBC had sent in um, a FOIA asking for some information the attorney general's office came back and lied and said, well, this is an ongoing law enforcement investigation, so we can't give you anything. Well, that's, that was a lie. It was a law enforcement investigation. Police would be involved and I would be interviewed and police would be interviewing my witnesses. So I wrote what's called a Freedom of Information Act request. And I said, oh, well, since you're now telling the media this is a ongoing law enforcement investigation, I want all the billing records for the investigation, which you're allowed to get by law. So the police get a cup of coffee on the state dime, I can get the record. It's public information. They knew the jig was up. So they got my request around the 12th of May and uh, two years ago. And on the 15th of May, they came out with a phony statement saying, oh, you know what we decided? Um, we can't help him because he already raised these issues on appeal. Now, remember, I've been in the CIU for three years. I was the first case taken. They already knew all of this. And that was not a rule. They made that rule up after I went into the unit. So if you go on our website at New Era, you will see the actual contract I signed with the attorney general's office. That rule does not exist. Then you will see, and you'll see a, a screen capture of their website, that rule does not exist. Then 
you can see where they changed their website added that rule and then said, oh yeah, we have a rule that says if you raise these issues on appeal, we can't help you. That's the level of corruption here, Jack. And for all the listeners, not only is this true, this is in court and the attorney general's office has not denied one single word of what I just said, nor has she denied my innocence. So if you look at all the clippings that have come out in the last couple of years about this case, she has not once denied my complete innocence of this crime, knows that I'm innocent, admitted it to her staff, then sealed the report so nobody could see it, lied about it to a federal judge, lied about it to a state court judge. She was finally forced to give the report to the state court judge who read the report that says I'm completely innocent and then decided I can't see it either because it's attorney work product. It's confidential. So the giant report that says I was framed for murder, our attorney general here in the United States of America is refusing to let the public have or even see the report. She will not even let my appellate lawyers see this report, Jack. Essentially, the argument is being made that all of these issues are not new evidence and has all been raised before. There's nothing supposedly new for them to look at, but Temujin says there's more than enough, including the witness that no one has ever spoken to before. Then, when we got to Beth... Beth is such a bombshell witness because remember, she said uh, they lied to me. She never knew that I was convicted of this crime. She was never called to trial. They hid the police reports where she was interviewed and she's with me to this day. She told Valerie Newman in an interview, I was absolutely with him that day and they hid me from everybody, including him and his lawyers. And I was never called to testify. And I didn't even know this man was in prison till his private investigator found me living in Pennsylvania. You know what they said about her? Oh yeah, she doesn't matter. She's just another uh, witness saying the same thing. You know what the same thing is? That I was 500 miles away from this crime. Obviously, um, you went on a on a date with you know as he was called then Fred Freeman all those years ago. Who would have thought you know this? I mean, what would be I suppose an insignificant just normal date would turn into what it is. I mean, it's pretty insane. Have you followed the story? Back in 1986, I uh, did go out on a couple uh, dates with Fred Freeman, who at the time told me his name was Mickey, and uh, some. Uh, investigators had come to my high school and asking questions about, you know, where I was. And I gave them the information and life went on. I was not approached uh, after that. I moved away. And then 35 years later, a private investigator tracked me down. So unfortunately, I kind of let a lot of the details of uh that time slip by yeah of course. Uh, but you know i do remember uh, meeting him and going on a, a few dates and yeah it's really crazy how one wrinkle in time can change a lifetime do you remember a specific evening where you were with him and and his car broke down yeah that was um that was the night we were at a big boy uh restaurant and uh, it was late in the evening. I was, um, you know, hanging out with um, him and Paul. They were trying to get the car started. And yeah, I do remember. I do remember that. Investigators did come and speak with you at some point. Yeah, I think it was. Uh, and now um, that I have seen some of the uh, transcripts of the, I don't, I think that's the right word, or paperwork uh, from the interview. Um, 
Yeah, it was a state. It was a state police officer, and um, two state police officers that came to my high school. From uh, Fred's accounts of things, I mean, he he told his attorney at the time about you and that he was with you the sort of early hours of the morning of when this crime took place. And um, I think his attorney said he couldn't find you, but I'm assuming you never got contacted by his attorney at all. No, uh, I didn't as well as um, no, uh, nobody, you know, contacted my parents, you know, to see, because if that were the case, you know, my parents would have definitely, you know, passed that information on. What did you think when you got this phone call from the the um, investigator all these years later? It was quite a shock. Um, you know, my, my first instinct was, oh my goodness, how were they able, you know, to track me down? It's not like I was, you know, living off the grid, but I, you know, definitely didn't think that I was leaving a trail. And then when uh, the investigate the private investigator, uh, Herb Wexler, shared some of the details, I mean, my heart completely broke. And then after that, uh, I immediately went online and started doing, you know, I just Googled it and all of this information popped up. And when I started reading about the case uh, and um, the information or investigative reporting that Bill Proctor from Detroit was doing, I mean, it was such an incredible case. And, you know, it really makes you wonder how something like this can happen. I believe you spoke with um, Temujin or Fred um, recently. How was that speaking with him after all these years? Yeah, well, he definitely still sounds the same. We spoke briefly. Unfortunately, you know, the time cuts off after, you know, so many minutes. You know, how do you condense 35 years of catching up with <laughs> in a 15-minute you know, phone minutes. call? So, yeah. Exactly. So, um, you know, I told him definitely if you know he ever you know needed to speak with me again i would be open to that uh just the other day i had the opportunity to meet with uh bill proctor and what an advocate that he is has been for temujin and just the amount of you know hours and legwork that him and his team and not just bill but you know so many countless other people it's just really amazing that this hasn't acquired even more attention Like, how come we're not seeing, you know, this on nightly news or more exposés on, you know, not just this case, but now that I've been made aware of it, I've just been reading about so many other wrongful convictions and it's really quite sad. You know what, you could look on this in in the past and go, because there's, you know, other cases that I've looked at that, you know, these happened many, many years ago, early 90s, late 80s, whatever. You could could turn around and go, you know what, it was bad in the the past, that was wrong, you know, this is terrible, you know, but we've changed, you know, we're we're making a change for the better. But they're not, they're looking at this and just going... But they have, they're not. No, they're not, it's not changing. Like, it's still as bad. Tony, our friend Tony, he has... Yeah, Tony has, what, 11 years in? So that's just 11 years. That's nothing. Yeah. I, I've been in this prison almost 11 years. I've been here eight years. So, no, nothing's changed. Tony was just framed 11 years ago. Yeah. So, no, this is, nothing's changing. Nothing's getting any better. The only thing that's different now, thanks to cell phones, the internet, and video cameras everywhere, it's a little harder to frame somebody. Yeah. I mean, God, if there had been video cameras in my day, I wouldn't be sitting here right now because you'd have footage from that parking lot of the murder, the vehicle leading, you're probably able to get plates, all kinds of crazy identifications. You have satellites everywhere now. 
tech, that technology, but they didn't put that technology in there to protect people like me. They use that technology to prosecute people, and that's fine, or to spy on people, which is not so fine. But it does make it a little bit harder for things like what happened to me to happen because there, there's now cameras all over Escanaba, and there's cameras all over every airport now, and there's cameras all over every college and college parking lot now. So, uh, and businesses everywhere can see cameras out, and they can see in the streets and so on. So it's, it's a little bit harder, but it's not because anything has gotten any better. There's not one thing that's gotten better. Prosecutors, police, and judges still do this all the time. So why? Why, after all of these years, is Temujin Kenzu still behind bars? With the mountains of evidence in his favour, numerous witnesses placing him hundreds of miles away, zero evidence placing him at that crime scene, the obvious corruption, and of course, prosecutorial misconduct. After all that I've been through and all they did to me, you know, their concern, and this is their quote, this case could cost the state hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, I never, I never threatened to sue. I don't talk about suing. This is them. But they know what was done to me. And so that's what they say every single time. Oh, my God, this would bankrupt the city and the county. Oh, my God, we have to compensate him for everything he lost and everything he's been through. And but, that, but that's what, I mean, you know, that's what this whole thing is about. It's about, it's about money at the end of the day. Yeah. And he said, and people in power. Absolutely. Money and power. Almost everyone in this case went on to further their careers, moving into higher power positions, most notably the prosecutor who would end up in one of the most powerful seats in the court system in America. Uh, am I right in saying that this prosecutor who was on this case is now a, a federal ju- a judge? Is that correct? Well, from what I understand, he may have decided to retire in the last 24 hours. Oh, wow. Um, that's, that's the word that got back to me. But yes, that was a lifetime appointment. I have no idea how old Robert Cleveland is. I have no idea the state of his health. But I know he's been sitting on the bench. And then about a month or so ago, he announced in his courtroom and started letting people with cases know that he would no longer be hearing cases. So we could be speaking now uh, days after his retirement. I don't know what that's going to mean for any effort to uh, free Fred Freeman. But um, we're still thinking that his influence um, is still out there. Because he does have people who used to work in his office that are doing some pretty ugly things to maintain this continued vilification of Timogen Kensu. The running theory, obviously, is that, you know, Timogen is still in prison because it's all to protect, okay, basically, a, a federal judge, or who is now a federal judge, who has obviously got lots of connections. But, yeah, so if he's retired and he's no longer on, on the bench, so to speak, then um, who knows what that could do. It will be interesting from this point on but in all these years of this this fight for an innocent man his position uh we believe has most certainly had um, a dilatorious effect on the argument and what really should have happened in a number of courts where where arguments of actual innocence and failure in the trial um were enough to essentially grant a new trial yet at every single level a state and federal on the appeals. Uh, They have failed uh, for reasons that none of us understand. Host and creator of the Wrongful Conviction podcast and supporter of Temujin Kenzu, Jason Flom. The state actually had the balls to put forth a theory that he had wandered onto a local airstrip there somewhere in Port Huron and convinced a pilot to fly him 
round trip for free because they knew he didn't have any money while not making any records of the flight. So there's no plane, there's no flight records, there's no pilot. But this was the theory that held muster in a court of law in the state of Michigan, in the United States of America, and for which Temujin was sentenced to spend the rest of his life in prison. And that's where he is to this day. So many of these cases where I'm like, why is no one in here looking at each other and go, well, this sounds fucking weird. That can't have happened. How does that happen? I mean, and Temujin's case is, is a perfect example. The prosecution are outlaying something that is just is not going to happen. I mean, people don't just walk into an airfield and say, hey, can I just, any chance you can fly me 400 miles away? We can't land at an airport because there can't be any record of that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, really it, nuts. If I it mean, was a, if it was a, a movie, you'd be laughed out of the fucking boardroom and they'd go, well, this makes no sense. Yeah, but, I mean, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I just want to thank everybody who's listening. Uh, I want to thank, I'm going to get a little misty now. Uh, I want to thank everybody who's listening out there. I want to thank you for caring about this issue, whether you're new to uh, criminal justice and wrongful conviction issues or not. Um, I appreciate you listening to me. And uh, for those of you who are supportive, I appreciate your support. And for those of you who are skeptics, I totally understand and respect that. And I hope you look into this matter more, not just my case, but this issue, because it is a travesty that's still going on around the world. It is especially bad in the States. And obviously, I'm sure in countries we can't access like Iran and North Korea and some of the more oppressive regimes. But I just want to thank all of you out there for being a part of this, for listening, for caring, and, and uh, for any support you're willing to give, not just to me, but to others in this situation. And uh, please support Jack and his team there. Please support One Minute Remaining. Tweet, Facebook, Instagram, Google, get the word out there. The more we get the word out, the more change we can affect. Thank you, everybody. You have one minute remaining. This is the story of Temujin Kenzu so far, but it is by no means the end. As we do with all of our cases, we will stay across everything to do with Temujin's fight for freedom. So Temujin Kenzu has always maintained his innocence, a man with nothing but a bad check charge against his name, someone who says he is completely innocent. However, our next story is that of a man who is not and does not claim to be. I've never been the fearful type of man. And mind you, I believe I believed in this. Jamie Rogers was, in his own words, an angry, violent young man. A young man who would end up behind bars. And once he got there, would move up the ranks of his prison gang to become second in charge. Yeah. And this is what was our headquarters. This is where all the big dudes are. You know what I mean? This is where, this is the hub for my gang. You know what I mean? This is where you go and you further your education. This is where you go and learn your discipline. This is where you go and you get refined and on point. This is where the badasses and the badasses go. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Produced, hosted and created by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This show is part of the ACAST Creator Network. <laughs>